Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? Or in the case of today, we're interviewing who? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and my guest today is Chris Appelhans, and Chris is the writer and director of the new animated film Wish Dragon. It's from Sony Pictures Animation and it came out on Netflix. Before working on Wish Dragon, Chris has been at a bunch of studios. He's been at DreamWorks. He's been at Disney. He was at Leica for Coraline. And the film is about Din, a working class college student in China. And he comes into possession of a magical Wish Dragon. And it is very much inspired by the story of Aladdin, which, by the way, is actually a Chinese story. And I'm going to say up front, I would be remiss if I did not mention this, just because if you've ever listened to or read any of my coverage about diversity, equity, and inclusion and representation in animation, particularly with Asian and Asian American artists, artists. So Chris, just FYI, is white and he's American and he, you know, this story takes place in China. It's about a Chinese character. And I will acknowledge that I think the difference between this and something like Raya and the Last Dragon or Over the Moon is that Chris wrote this film and directed this film and it is based on a story from his life. It's inspired by a friend of his. But the difference between that and something like Araya where it's written by someone else and then you know, they're basically auditioning directors for it. The people who made those stories aren't like, I also want to direct this. The studios that made those films are like, oh, we're going to bring someone in. And they did not bring in, or I don't even know if they considered Asian or Asian American artists who would probably have more of a connection to the material. I think Chris's story is a personal story, or at least a friend's personal story, versus these sort of more made by committee ones. And I, my frustration with that, and Chris and I actually did end up talking about this after the main conversation, it's frustrating that Asian Asian American artists are not being given the opportunity to direct stories that are not about their own culture. You're not seeing like, you know, an Asian or Asian American director as the director of Zootopia too. So if they're not being considered for or being told that they have enough experience for those opportunities, and they're also not being considered for the opportunities that are about stories that are very much about those cultures, like where is the room for growth? Where is the room for representation? So I'm just going to get that out of the way now. We did talk about it. It's just not in the recording, but I do think it's a major difference. And then talking to Chris Moore, this film was an opportunity for artists in a country that doesn't have as advanced, you know, animation sort of global programs to work on a feature length film and was giving opportunities to people in that sense. So I have to acknowledge the opportunities it generated on that front. And without further ado, here's we're interviewing who? So, hey, Chris, just a little background about me. I came from the world of animation, and then I'm half Chinese and grew up in China over the summer. So we'll talk about... Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. You are the target audience. Holy I'm the target shit. audience. Yes. Yeah. It's just me. I'm one of the five people with Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I would love to start with, just jumping into Wish Dragon, logistically yeah, yeah. or emotionally, what was the most challenging scene? Ooh. Logistically, the first scene with Long as a character, which uh, he's so hard everything is and i everything is sort of cast against the sort of circumstances of this which was such a small team and such a small budget relative to what i was working for so everything is hard because the margin of error is zero you just mm -hmm. can't afford to ever redo anything or throw anything away or make any mistakes so i think logistically because of that <laughs> long is a really difficult character you know some stuff about animation and rigging and vfx and so you know exactly why like the levels of complexity and we can we can talk about those but ideally he, he, nobody notices he just seems like seamless and living and like a great yeah, character he's a, a character <laughs> but the first scene animating him was the scariest because it was there are no easy shots with him everything's hard and we had spent so long trying to get his rig right and sort of his the post animation pipeline right so he could work functionally 
that we had basically pushed all of the long scenes to like the second half of the schedule. <laughs> so like halfway through the movie, we're starting like our first shot with the title character. And we're like, I hope this works because if not, we're so screwed. Yep. <laughs> um, and I think that was, that was logistically, technically the most challenging. And then I think for me anyways, emotionally, there's a scene at the end of the movie with Din and his mom. He comes home at the end of this long journey and it's, not much of a scene. It's a minute long. He's sort of, she's trying to apologize for what she thinks she's failed to do. He's trying to offer some grace. It, to me, it's the heart of the movie, honestly. Like the, it's the part that I always get emotional during. And that was really challenging because I, I knew and, and just from my life experience in China and also knowing my friends and their families and their moms and talking to the animators, I knew that the way that would play out would be so different than a Western conception of like an exchange of feelings, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was weird enough that she was going to allow her son to hug her. We're like, should we even hug? I think we could make that work. And the animators, like, it was so funny because all my animators in China, like played turns pretending to be their own mom. Like how would my mom deal with me hugging them? <laughs> and it, the the footage is so good. It's just like various versions of uncomfortable thinking that you have some ulterior motive, assuming that you like have cancer and you're about to die and that's why you're getting all emotional. <laughs> like yeah. every range of like denial of that was in there. And so I think getting that to feel authentic and also, you know, still heartfelt, still delicate. It's just it's a it's all the same emotions as human beings, all of the same, the depth of love and worry about each other. It's all exactly the same. It just exhibits itself differently. So that was my that was the hardest thing to get right in animation and kind of my favorite moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that one certainly spoke to me as someone who is like cross-cultural and intersectional, oh, right? I, was just like, <laughs> I, I get it. But making a film that, you know, you have a megastar Chinese producer behind it. You have a Chinese studio and, you know, crew yeah. and stuff like that, but also aimed at a global and, you know, somewhat Western audience. Like where do you strike the balance, especially working with your team? Like that's a great example of something where, I think, you know, American or Western animators would approach it totally differently. Yeah, I, I think a part of it is inherent to who I am. The fact that that I'm telling the story or I'm the storyteller, I'm the vessel, is going to Westernize it. There's just no way it won't. And mm-hmm. And I don't think that's good or bad. I think it's part of, I think there's a new thing happening now, which is this kind of melting of cultures across what we used to think of as cultural borders, you know. So when you meet a you talk to a young millennial in China and their savviness about the world and their cultural influences are, they're watching Game of Thrones and <laughs> listening to the same music as me. And like at so many levels, we share a ton. And then on a much deeper level, there's things that are so profoundly different about the way that they've been raised and the way that, that the framework that they have themselves in the world that I think for me anyways, the goal was to kind of recreate what happened to me, which was the inspiration for the movie. I I made friends with, when I was 25, I made this really good friend in Shanghai. He was a cousin of my college buddy. And when I visited, we just became kind of platonic soulmates. And so I knew him for like 10 years. I don't know how to describe it because we're like- No, it's it's very accurate. (laughs) Yeah. And we're just the same person, basically, like just born on other sides of the world. So- we think the same, we have the same temperament, we have the same instincts, we have the same foibles. And so it was this very strange experience of almost meeting your doppelganger or vice versa, 
who lived an entirely different experience than you. And it makes you immediately think like, what would my life be like? How would I deal with his situation? So I was introduced to the reality, the depth of, of China and Shanghai and his family and, and that whole culture through his personal story. Like I watched him navigate his career. He had a really tragic romance with a girl who was from a really rich family. It, and it was very Dickensian. It was very fairy tale-ish. And in talking to him about it one day, he mentioned, I was like, your life is like a Dickens novel or an Aladdin movie or something. He's like, oh, well, you know, that's a Chinese folktale. Um, it is indeed. <laughs> and I was like, Ba-dong. So I, I think for me, it was a way to recreate for an international audience what happened to me, which was through one person's story, I kind of got to fall in love with this country and this culture. And it was like a portal. Like, so could I recreate that same experience? Could I bring people to one person, get them to fall in love with him? And then through his struggle with the world, kind of help them understand a little bit and maybe see themselves in that in that culture and, and see the kind of common theme. So that was the goal. And I think that's what made me comfortable with trying to tell the story. It's just so personal, even though it seems weird that it should be a personal movie for a, for some guy from the middle of nowhere, Idaho. <laughs> but um, I mean, all films, all good films, I think are personal in many yeah, ways, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's and, the point of telling a story? If... <laughs> and it, it really helped me because I don't know in terms of like uh, maybe the way that anybody else perceives it, but I always felt like I was making a movie for my friend. And so it really guided my choices about what mattered and what didn't. And there were things about the Aladdin story that the Chinese folktale that I was like, dude, this in the Chinese folktale, he has this very important relationship with his mom. And I was like, we have to embrace that because that's such a part of my friend's life. Even all my Chinese American friends, their mom is a pretty central figure in their lives. So I knew that we needed to dial that up. And there were other things that were like so similar about the Aladdin story to versions like the Disney version. But I was like, I'm not going to just change this to change it. Because the fact that the story is about a peasant boy who falls in love with a princess and in the pursuit of her almost loses himself, that is what makes the story resonant to my friend. So I'm going to make the movie that I'm accountable to him in the long run. And that was really helpful way for me to decide what did or didn't belong in the movie and and what felt like, you know, who you were answering to. Um, And then he got to go see it in March. And it was like the best thing that happened to me in the last six years was getting an email from him and just what he said and how much it meant to him and knowing that it, it was reinforcing his sense of how he was going to hold on to whatever values he had in this world. That's so confusing. So that was like, full circle for me and, and kind of mission accomplished. And the rest, honestly, the rest is a little bit frosting, <laughs> which is a very selfish thing to say when you're making a, a big animated film or at least a, an ambitious one, but it's the truth. I'm sure everyone loves hearing that. No, I, I, think, it's, I think it's fair. <laughs> oh, this might open a can of worms. I'm like, if their mother is alive, have they seen it? And what did they think of it? Like, and that's a real limit. That's true. That's you. true. I got to find out what his mom thinks. Oh, God. Yeah, get his mom's email. <laughs> <laughs> that makes total sense. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. And we're back. What do you think the biggest change was? Because you are drawing from the Aladdin tale and then, you know, your own personal life. Like, what's the biggest change from the first version of the story that was percolating in your brain to the one we see on screen? I think the biggest change was I started thinking that Din was the main character. Even though I was calling the movie Wish Dragon from the start, 
I was thinking about him, his journey, because it was very much personal to my friend. And so it was sort of this natural protagonist. And as the movie evolved, we as a team working on it realized at some point that Long was taking over, not in a bad way, but that Din was a sort of, there's a term for this in screenwriting. I forget what it is, but he's a bit of a forcing device. He's like on this mission and he's so relentless that he forces all these characters around him to either adapt or make a choice. And he goes kind of full circle. He has a set of values. He very comes real close to losing them, but then he comes, he, he gets them back and he, he kind of comes of age in that moment. He grows up without changing who he is. It's a lovely arc, but with Long, I think it's a much bigger arc. Like the fact that he's so flawed, that he's so such a terrible friend and bad person, basically, and essentially is carrying a really, really deep shame about his own. He's in crazy denial about the failures of his life. And he's holding up this very superficial set of values to protect himself from that. And he's dragged on the story and it just forces him. It just breaks him down moment by moment to kind of see and face the fact that he he's got things wrong. And so I think I didn't understand the depth of his story and it didn't it wasn't really reflected until we really started boarding and working on the animatic and he started to sort of demand some answers about who he was and where he came from and and I felt like that really made the movie more interesting and it accomplished something that I really wanted to do which was to do a genie who was really charismatic and entertaining but also completely not your like best friend who just wants the best for you that that's been done so perfectly. I don't want to do that. I want to do the guy who who's almost like a grifter. Like he, he might <laughs> pretend to be your best friend, but he just wants something from you, which is very selfish. And he's happy to sell you a, a pile of gold or a Lamborghini or whatever it is to get you off his plate, get what he wants. Um, that gave us such a unique dynamic that made it feel like, okay, we're, we're treading our own ground now. So, And now which friend in your life is that person? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I make fun of two of my storyboard artists, the two heads of story. Brad Seacrest and Josh Lieberman, who were just wonderful. They're just world-class talent. But honestly, they're kind of assholes. Like they <laughs> they have a more, they're more in touch with, I'm like kind of like, I'm a selfish person like all of us, but I'm like a little more in touch with my like empathetic side. And uh-huh. they are too, but like they are very easily able to tap into kind of like the, I don't know, this sort of Larry David side of themselves. Like it's all about me and how can I, we, we always with long, the big reference was um, Alec Baldwin in, uh, in um, 30 rock, 30 rock. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Jack Donaghy. Donaghy or something. And he, he's such a terrible person, but you like him because he doesn't even realize how flawed he is. So mm-hmm. he's not apologizing. He's not being a jerk and then feeling bad about it. He just doesn't even notice the damage he's causing. And so they were both really good at that. They could channel that and they could push him into behaviors that I was like, oh my God, yes, that's like the even more on the nose, even the more authentic version of how a person in that mind frame would work. And it really helped to give me a counterweight to like this, the more heartfelt sentimental stuff that is very easy for me. <laughs> would you say it's the difference between someone who is a malicious asshole who like when they're a jerk, you know, is like intentionally hurting people as opposed to like a self-absorbed one? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And some people are, most people like that, I think are, there's something going on underneath that's unresolved. And so they're overcompensating with all this stuff in it. And when they're oblivious to it, and sort of oblivious to the flaws with it, they're a little easier to like. And and that's part of what we wanted Long to be was like, if you have three wishes, I mean, everybody 
is lying if they're saying they're not thinking at least for a minute about a giant pile of gold. Like, dude, that'd be awesome. Big pile of money. Be great. Are you kidding? A Lamborghini? Why not? So we wanted to give voice to to the side of everybody that does want to wish for that stuff because there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not even, we never wanted the movie to be like, money is not important. Of course it's important. It's so important. But I think where we landed was super important to life. But it can't give meaning to your life at the end of your at the end of the day, you're only going to get meaning from the human relationships you have with people around you. Now, in many cases, that could be through money. You could make a bunch of money and donate it, build a hospital. And a lot of people who make a lot of money, they do that at the end of their life because just having the pile of gold isn't enough. You need to see it have some purpose in the world that makes you feel like a human being. So we tried to we really tried to avoid anything didactic about don't want money because that's crazy that's stupid (laughs) and yet some some people take a pile of money and send themselves to space you know it's just right yeah (laughs) it offers so many things and that's what you do with it yeah well if you could give three wishes to someone else so you aren't getting this wish you have to give them out one person and it's not someone you know who would it be and why oh my gosh oh hmm it could be anybody anybody but like the answer of your mom probably doesn't, you know. Right, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's a lot of people that I might eliminate from this world, but I don't think that's the spirit of the question, right? Uh, and, you know, you're trusting this person with some all-powerful wishes, so it could be part of this. It may be part of the right, thinking of the spirit right. of the question. Do I, yeah, do I give them, do I give them all to um, Neil Gorchek? Um, you know, it's one of the interesting things that made the movie fun to think about and it reflected something that I think is true, which is, for me anyways, it would be so easy to, I think, solve problems through wishes, you know, complicated problems in the world, or to wish for the resources to to make the world better in some way. And yet at the end of the day, I think what the story is about for me is the dignity of being a, a good human being every day is, it is something you have total control over. You don't need a dragon to do that. And the third act of the movie is about people giving up the thing that they wanted or that they thought they wanted, whether right. it's Long's freedom or Din's third wish, that in some way connecting yourself to the people in your life and doing something on their behalf, is going. that's going to give you fulfillment that you can't, you just can't wish for that. That's not like a, and there's a lot of things anybody could want in the world, but at the end of the day, a big part of, and I found this as a teacher and as a director with my crew, being able to feel like you gave some part of yourself to people, it, it's just the best feeling. It really is fulfilling for you, it, partly for your ego, partly for your sense of immortality. And also just because it, I don't know, we're, we must just be programmed that way. So it's, I'm kind of dodging the question, but I guess that's because. It's that fair. Really... And also you didn't have time to think of it. Like just for an example, <laughs> I was approaching it as like, okay, who do I trust to like actually make good on, you know, unlimited power, blah, oh, blah, blah. Yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. like, Malala or Greta Thunberg like one of those <laughs> right. two like, yeah. will solve global warming they're not going to be yeah. like oh just kidding I'm going to wish for you know right Lamborghini and use it up on that I was like I think I yeah, I, yeah. Like, do something I, with at least one of those wishes I think Greta would do pretty well yeah I think so too. yeah <laughs> but if you if you think of something you can always come okay. back to it <laughs> I want to go back to the rigs for a moment and um mm. you have a very person who I love as your one of your producers Mr. Jackie Chan <laughs> Oh, yeah. And so you have a lot of martial arts in this film. Mm. What was the discussion like about, you know, obviously Long is a very complicated rigged character. I'm sure 
nightmarish at times, but yeah. you have this human, when Din does get these fantastical martial arts powers, you know, what is the conversation like about what they can do that's in the realm of possibility and where are we getting like fantastical with it? And what was, what were those like? Cause that, yeah. there was a lot, there were a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was an interesting challenge in the sense of the movie's very grounded in a lot of ways. You could make a, it's not out of the realm of possibility. You could make a live action version of this movie with the VFX dragon. And that occurred to us early on. And we said, well, then if we're going to do it all animated, we better make a conscious choice to stylize our characters and their performances, not caricature them, but stylize them, right? push them so that we made the most of the medium. Otherwise, why not cast the real Stephen Chow and, you know, yeah. and have him reprice his King of Comedy character <laughs> as this earnest, adorable guy. So I think where that ended up in the action and in the general performance with the humans was this thing, hopefully that's very subtle, which is we pushed to the absolute limit of squash, stretch, bend, blur, rubber hose arms, things like that. We pushed it right to the limit where it felt larger than life in some way. It felt like a world that wasn't live action, but not to the point that it became kind of a tonal commitment of like, we're going to be a little Warner Brothers here. Mm -hmm. We're going to do tongue on the floor. That felt like it just competed with what was cool about the story being grounded, the reality of it, the way it could be both larger than life and still relatable and not 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 too silly. So in doing that, that was a real rigging and modeling challenge. And then when it came to do the action, I think we were kind of well prepared because that became about, let's just take every pose and every timing choice and every fun thing that makes a real fight visceral and turn that animation dial up and push the squash and the stretch and push the reactions and the shapes and how everything moves right to the threshold where it's right before it breaks and starts to feel sort of disconnected from reality and you lose the sense of stakes a little bit. So I think that was all kind of one sort of stylistic choice and, and it helped to make those action scenes great. And then we just got to sit in a hotel with Jackie and pick his brain about like his editorial timing and the way he double cuts action and things that we had this great conversation with him and I was like, oh my God, I feel like I have the secret knowledge about Jackie Chan's fighting techniques and editorial style. And then there was a great, I think it's Every Picture Tells a Story. There's that YouTube channel. And it had done a breakdown on um, Hong Kong action films. And mm -hmm. it was like, oh, they had figured out independently all the same tricks that he was doing <laughs> that made his stuff work so good. I'm like, oh, okay, well, secret's out. But, but hearing, hearing it from the source, you know, there's something special cool. about pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. And he's such a he's such a wholesome lover of film that it's contagious. Like we were very nervous. Would he be interested in this project? We didn't. You know, it's a, it's a small budget. It's 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 like compared to the things that on his plate, he's got I'm sure much higher paying options. But when we pitched the story to him, he sat there. We we gave a long in depth pitch with all this artwork, and he sat there for a minute, and then he's like, oh. Yeah, this is a good movie. You guys want to make a good movie, huh? Because that's really hard. Are you, you would you up for this? You really want to make a good movie? And we're like, yes. <laughs> but to to sort of deal with somebody who understood the ambition and and understood the thought that had gone into the to writing and the crafty of the story right away, it was really important because then he protected us. He brought in his his co production partners and investment, and he just said, "Trust these people. They are making something good." don't interfere, don't second guess, just support us. And that was huge because it could easily have been much more committee managed situation. So he's one of the 
most impressive work ethics of anyone I've ever met. And oh yeah, and like and he did, I'm like, do do you sleep? I don't think you sleep. No, and <laughs> I think I asked him that. I was like, do you sleep? <laughs> yeah, and he speaks he speaks Cantonese as his first language, so Mandarin yep. second to him. And Mandarin is so hard; the tones are yeah. really hard. Yeah, just to just to sound like not like a dummy, and then to do that and perform. So he had a, it was actually a very illustrative moment. We were in the booth. He had a dialogue coach to help with the tones. He had me harping in his ear about the motivation of the character and the energy mm-hmm. and the dynamic and he's doing it all to picture because it's dubbed so like it's not like he has the freedom to go as long as he wants he's got to try and land with the animation so hard we're doing so many takes at some point i went in there i'm like dude i'm so sorry this is like we've been here eight hours and we've done like three scenes I, do you do you want me to lay off i just i don't i don't know what to do and he's like chris <laughs> when i do a stunt i have to do like a hundred takes and every take, I'm like getting hit in the head with a refrigerator or something. And I keep doing them because it takes a lot to get the perfect one. So just chill out. This is what it takes to make it good. Let's make it good. I'll be fine. I can survive. It was such a great moment to see that dedication from somebody who had, no, he doesn't need to. He could phone it in tomorrow and get paid the exact same money. So pretty cool. It's a, it's a cool dude. Did you? Yeah. Was there ever talk of having him do the English voice? We thought about it, um, but his accent is just his English accent. I think you could have done a really funny version. I think, it, if, I think you would take it a lot of VO sessions. Is probably what it, yeah. he, he could, it just would have been, you know. And, and I and I think it's it, it was a challenge in manner, and I'm really amazed that he pulled it off. Which is that Long is a a pretty hyper articulate person. You know, he is a con man. He is a. We thought a lot about. Do you, do you remember the Music Man? That old musical, mm-hmm. um, almost like one of I forget the actor who plays that, but. A character like that, and he's a he's a speed talker because he's a little, he's little snake to... oil salesman too. Yeah, like. yeah. He he's doesn't care that he's selling you a car that's going to explode. He just wants to sell it, and and to perform that, I think you needed some real master of the language to get that personality across. I sure. think if we'd started with Jackie in that role and written the story around him, you could have crafted a character that would have worked in English. But he, I think he understood right away, like. Yeah, that's not that's not for me, you know, which was nice. That, that makes sense. Self-awareness yeah. is important. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, so these are some broader questions. Hmm. What inspires you? Oh, uh, aside from your friend. <laughs> yeah. As a filmmaker, I always go back to the true folk quote, truth and spectacle, which I think is is perfect. It's that's what movies should have to me. And the truth part is the hardest part, but the spectacle part's pretty hard too. And if you don't have one or the other, why are you making this movie? And uh, truth without spectacle, okay, write a novel. You know, like let's take advantage of this medium, which is visual and cinematic, and and should be a roller coaster ride. And the truth part is, for me, anyways, it's so hard to make these movies. It takes so long. If you don't have some part of yourself in there, if you don't feel like this is something you're proud to kind of leave on the earth, it's not worth it go get some other job. It's totally not worth the pain. So you're kind of trapped between those two. But those are the, I think, the things that I always look to and ask myself, are you managing both of these things somehow? On the flip side, what frustrates you? Uh, You can answer traffic if you want. Yeah. I don't know. I think on this film, the it wasn't even a frustration. It was just a stressor with just the limited resources. Like, the I think the movie... I have come from a background of big studio films, DreamWorks and Disney and even Leica. And that's just the only movie that I really knew how to make. And so that was just 
I was like, well, we're just going to make that quality of film. How can we do it with a third of the resources? And that was very stressful, but it was also like, I knew, I kind of knew I was signing up for that. So I couldn't get too mad because I'm like, you, you started this dummy. <laughs> like you made this bed, so deal with it. But I think what it, the, the only frustration for me was that reduces the margin for error. And the, when you have a little margin for error, that gives you a little extra freedom to search for happy accidents, the kind of things that, and we still found some, thank God, and that they really make for great moments in the movie. But I think there's a value to having that little bit of extra wiggle room that allows you to improvise and occasionally try something and surprise yourself and still pull it all together. So, but overall, yeah, I, I have very blessed to not have too many frustrations at the end. <laughs> Fair enough. How do you personally define success now and how has that changed from earlier in your life or career? Oh, I think the biggest change for me on this movie was I certainly, I had a very naive point of view. I, I've always wanted to tell stories. I never had a, like a particular ambition, like I must be a director. But I, I, the more I worked in the industry, the more I fell in love with the storytelling, the more I felt like I really wanted, I really had some stories that I wanted to share with the world. And so I think in, in doing that, I guess I, which again, it's like sort of a naive way to approach it, but that was the premise of this film. And it was the, the sort of good intentions of like, we really believe in this story. We believe in the sort of ability for it to bring together this very diverse group of people from different countries and different cultures and different experience levels, all because they all kind of care about this film that they want to make together. That not only did that make the logistics possible on a creative level, like, yay, we made the film. That's pretty good. That's awesome. It made for this really remarkable life experience and when you do something for six years, you realize like, dude, that's a chunk of your life. You don't get it back. Like this is life right now. This is not just work. Like this is it. And you do that uh, five times and you're just about to the end of the road. <laughs> so I think it was, it was a wake up call in some ways. And I'm very lucky that it was a good experience that like the, the craft and the time we spent making these news, that is, that is our, also our life real estate. And so make sure you're doing it with people you like, and make sure you're doing it for things that you care about because otherwise those years could go by making something that doesn't mean anything to you and was miserable the whole time. And I'm like, that's just not worth it, at least for me. So that was the big change. I think I see all of the work that I do now in the context of the creative fulfillment and also just a bunch of human beings going on a journey together. Let's be, let's make that journey. It's going to be hard anyways. Let's make it somehow fulfilling and fun. Oh, that's a good definition. <laughs> I, I thought you were like wishing for money. No. <laughs> oh, growing up, who was your favorite fictional character? Ooh, I Calvin, Calvin Hobbes. Oh, love Calvin yeah. so much. Oh my god, I did. I put. Do you feel you were more Calvin or Hobbes esque as Calvin? Yeah, okay. just a total bumbling, deluded idiot jumping off roofs. I put, I like literally put crisco in my hair and made a spike <laughs> out of it because he did i tried to take my tricycle on the roof I mean, you're talking did. to someone who lives the calvin hair yeah, <laughs> like, right. you, you you made it you did it. i did it i committed <laughs> so yeah that was the i felt like that was my that was my spirit animal all through my childhood much to my parents like oh no what have we done how do we take these books back <laughs> <laughs> there's no taking the Larson back no, in there so. no, yeah. <laughs> what is the first film that you remember seeing in theaters that you were the one who was like we need to go see this movie I think it was Jurassic. No, no, it was the He-Man movie. I mean, both uh, are good answers. I'm fully I, 
I made my grandpa go take me to the theater to watch the He-Man movie. And uh, it started. And here comes He-Man. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's happening. And about 20 minutes in, I look over. And my grandpa's sound asleep. <laughs> and I was like, I felt this like, I, was, I felt so sad for him that he that he was missing this amazing moment that was the He-Man movie. And now I look back, I'm like, oh, that would totally be me like checking out after 15 minutes. Like, okay, it's quiet. I'm tired. Let me take a nap in here. But I think Jurassic Park was the movie that made an impression for me on the potential of the sort of immersive experience of what a movie watching could be like and just a, a sort of a perfect combination of truth and spectacle right it's it's yeah. a perfect movie so yeah it, it really is we've yet to top it i don't think yeah yeah i can't i can't fill tip it also it's just a genius <laughs> <laughs> but how do you relax oh uh i forgot i forgot how to relax you forgot how to... <laughs> i think i'm trying to figure that out now um when i, I definitely I, I love soccer so i love to play soccer to because it's the only thing i can do where my mind doesn't worry about Work stuff just takes me away. I love reading, and I just love being outside. I, I am very much. I grew up in the countryside, so I, I think I get instant. Re, I don't know recharge of whatever battery humans have when I'm just alone outside with stuff, with trees and grass and middle of nowhere. Gosh, so working I, in a I, studio in China was like your dream. <laughs> It was, it was a, the battery got pretty low sometimes. Yeah, it was funny though. We we made a few trips to the countryside, and the Chinese countryside is it's pretty rough nowadays. It's really gotten beat up, unfortunately. It's not. There are very few places there that are anything like the the national parks here, um, and that'll change. They'll they'll come full circle. I think it was part of a phase of development. But we made a couple trips. I went to eBay one time and got to go to a bamboo forest there went to Wuhan and got to go to some of the, the amazing river lake stuff there. And then I went to the countryside outside of Xiamen, which is the city where the studio was in Fujian province. And um, I went to pick Yaomei. I don't know if you, do you ever have Yaomei when you're in China? They're like those little, they look like a circular strawberry. They grow on trees. Yes, they're so, yes, yeah. oh my God, they're so delicious. We went to a Yaomei picking place and I just like disappeared from the group and like sat in the trees by myself eating those for like three hours. And I'm like, Okay, batteries recharged. I could keep going. So there's so Those many. Those yaomi, like... <laughs> oh yeah, and then I paid the price for that later. I think I ate like a thousand. But um, yeah, there's. It's such a beautiful country. It's in such a crazy transformation right now. But I think there's a lot of. That was something that I I really missed, and and something that I, I'm, looking forward to kind of recharging back here now and getting out to Idaho and standing in a field by myself. <laughs> Not with, you know, hundred people around is the, the nearest yeah. like empty space, but yeah. you know, different, different places. My last question is what's one thing you wish you had more time for, but you might've just oh. answered it. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be up there. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I actually, I think in my whole experience of living in China, I think it was about two and a half years. I wish I'd had more time to learn the language because I got to like, I can base proficiency, like just enough to confuse people. Like I can start to talk about stuff and then I'm in over my head, but I wish I'd had more time early on to do that. I I just, it was so relentless there that I could only find maybe two hours at night to try and squeeze stuff in. So I think 
I think I want to find more time going forward to continue to learn it because it's I, I love the language. I love how logical it is and, and kind of, I don't know, I just find it really fun to speak and listen to. So that would probably be my wish is just total Mandarin fluency overnight. <laughs> That's that's definitely on my wish list. I yeah, right? don't think I've ever heard it referred to as logical. <laughs> Just because oh, well, in yeah. a language where if you use the wrong tone on something, you got, I'm like, it's a trickster language. Oh, it's, <laughs> like, uh, it's you know, to- I, I had so many embarrassing experiences with my tones being wrong. Like I remember asking a waiter, I was trying to say, because um, it's also, there's like a, there's sort of like a fillerness to English. It's like, we put all these other like Mandarin is a little more cut to the chase, you know? It's efficient, yep. Yeah, it's so efficient. And it's sort of like, um, it doesn't require a lot of, at least for me, compared to like, I don't know, French or something. We have these specialized genders and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I have to memorize all this? Mandarin, I feel like, learn the vocabulary and then you just assemble it. But I was asking, I was trying to say like, excuse me, waiter, can I ask? Um, nope. What would what dish would you recommend? <laughs> you're already, right? you're too far in already. I've, yeah. I already see where this is going. <laughs> and, and so I think I was saying, "我可以问你," uh, uh, which is supposed to be like you know, like can I ask you, right? But I was also I think I was saying when the wrong tones. I was saying I can't even remember if it's the flat or the down, but one of them is kiss. So I'm like, "Fuyan, can I kiss you? What dish do you recommend?" I remember this guy just looking at me with terror in his eyes. And I'm like, what am I saying? Oh, I know I've done something wrong, but what is it? Then you got to deliver. You got to do it. If he said yes, you had to like. <laughs> That's true. I, said, <laughs> okay. I said the when with the flat tone. Well, oh, I think God. the better way to do it is like Ching Wen, because it's like, please ask. Like, that's what you yes. like, please yes. Can I please ask in a condensed two word? Right. <laughs> and I, I learned like the, I started learning vocabulary and then just started thinking, oh, I can just do like a literal you would say it this way in English. So now I assemble it and that's not a good idea. Do not do that. But I kind of wish I had, could witness that as well because that's good. It was, it was good. And I'm I, sure, when yeah, I'm sure everyone took it well. But He walked away and I like said the exact pronunciation into my phone and my Google Translate. I'm like, what did I say? I'm like, oh no. So then I was mortified for the rest of dinner. But there were so many. I think the other one that stuck out was um, when I first, oh, it's Fu Yen. So when I was in a restaurant, like the first two weeks I was there, I was like, how do I say excuse me? Like, how do I get people's attention? And I see people, fu yen, fu yen. I'm like, oh, that must mean excuse me. So I tried it. I'm like, fu yen. And like, Boop, here they come. I'm like, perfect. So I'm like, file that away under excuse me. For two weeks, oh, no. I'm going around shaman. Like somebody bumps into me on the elevator. I'm like, fu yen somebody's like holding the door needs something and i'm like keep thinking excuse me oh excuse me i'm just going around saying waitress waitress i'm like oh so yeah very humbling very humbling i, I bet you're like legendary there <laughs> probably they're like here? this guy uh, he's been running around calling everyone waitress, <laughs> waitress. I don't know why. Is, it a, uh, is this a thing we missed that, that's i mean uh, i kudos you for like being willing to go somewhere and take a chance and be like, this is how we're going to get this movie done. Like, this is where we're going to go do it. I'm going to yeah. embrace the culture and just, you know, dive in. And, and it was also, I think, I, I think it's, it's also very helpful for me because I, I never wanted the movie to be somehow a representation of like, this is, this is China. You should understand China this way. It's always going to have uh, a Western influence. And, and that's as fundamental as just, 
literally the prototypical animation protagonist who is like knows what they want and is aggressively pursuing it and the world is pushing it back them and they're pushing against the world even that even that role is very western that sort of approach to life there's a stoicism to even the current generation of young people in china to that culture of like you just sort of deal with it you just you just keep in those dreams and ambitions and maybe you try to find a way for them but you're not like flaunting them and like getting mad at the world. So I think living there and spending all that time, it really helped me to see the movie for what it is, which is a bit of a mix. And, and, a, and I think that's a okay thing. I think that's a, that's a type of story that can provide some access to the authenticity and to the inner life of one culture that the rest of the world can get into without being so, cause there's some Chinese movies now that I love that I'm like, I also get why this is beloved in China and why the rest of the world is like, wait, what? I don't understand. I'm so confused. And I think that's also okay. There should be a bunch of movies and stories that only speak very specifically to one culture or one lived experience, but somewhere in between is a cool melting pot. And I think that was, I feel very lucky and I can look at my own film now and see in a lot of ways I, I see it and think, Oh, that's like, that's so American. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Okay, so I have a hyper-specific question then, and I, I hope you take this with the, like, the best of intent. So when Din is introduced in his like opulent persona, et cetera, yeah, yeah, he yeah. introduces himself as a different name. I was really curious as to, like, that's the one Western name that appears in the film. Was that like an intentional choice or was it just like, it's just, we're switching out a vowel? <laughs> oh, yeah. In Mandarin, we had this great joke because his name is, in Mandarin, he goes by Din Suqi, and... I forget who it is. It's like the son of like some huge, basically the JFK Jr. of China is Din, is Sutong, I think is his last name, okay. whatever his first name is. So in China, we had this perfect, in Mandarin, we had this perfect joke of like, it's the perfect way to put on like pretend he's under pressure. Here comes the dad. Yeah, Here people would the, get like, oh yeah, that's whoever. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the English, we're like, well, there's no way to make that melt. So we just thought, let's make something funny that seems like kind of a bad last minute you're, you don't have very long to think, and so you come up with a really bad fake name. Um, okay. And we just tried to embrace embrace the joke there, but I love I loved seeing like the laugh that it got in in China because that was it was just a happy accident that that lined up, but, and that's kind of fun. That's the other I think you can and you can see this like you you watch a Korean drama and there's like a type of comedy going on with the language and the acting that is that could only be appreciated when you fluent in Korean or yeah. grew up there. And yet there's all the other 85, 90% of it is completely coming across to any audience, just great characters and great stories. So I think that's kind of what's fun about all the cross pollination right now is it doesn't mean that every piece has to translate per se. It's okay if one or two are better in one language than they'll ever be in the other, you know, like one of the weirdest things about this movie is that there isn't, you know, in Mandarin, you have Shi Wang and you have you have want and need and sort of hope for, but the, there isn't a word wish that in, that can has a multifaceted use that you can have in English that stands right. for all these different things. And so we're like, oh my god, how do we translate this? Like half the poetry of the writing is that right? There's no nuance in English. It's just wish. Yeah, <laughs> wish. Right. Wish. <laughs> so there's a really. I guess that's just the challenge of these and, and it will always be that way. But it, it was, it was fun to kind of see both sides and understand what, what you, 
could do in one language that would be impossible and and what you could never get across sometimes uh, across that language gap and you just had to find a way to to make something close yeah that's totally fair i was i was just yeah. curious about it. i was like i might i think i'm overthinking the moment but i'm no. gonna ask about it <laughs> good question <laughs> Well, just because they are the Eastern-Western balance. But, well, thank yeah. you so much for your time. Congratulations on the film. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's so nice to share it with the world, finally. A huge thank you to Chris for joining. Wish Dragon is out now on Netflix. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.